0: This is a collaborative episode of Outlines, which has been written with Paul of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast and can be listened to on its own or as part of a wider series arc. So, if you're interested in more information surrounding the events of today's case, then please head over to the True Crime Enthusiast after you're done listening. Before I begin, I want to thank my new Patreon members for their support, including Dot B, Kitty Donnelly and Charles Paxford. If you're interested in joining and accessing all the full-length bonus episodes available to supporters, please head to www.patreon.com forward slash The Outlines Podcast. This episode contains vivid descriptions of crimes against children and may not be suitable for all listeners. So, as always, Discretion is advised. What do you think of when you think of a fairground? If you're anything like me, you think first of the lights, the colours of them against a darkening evening sky. Then the sound of the jingles from the rides, not individually, but altogether. There's the smell of fried food, candy floss, the jumble of people and voices shouting, talking, laughing together. Do you stop in a place like that and take it all in, or do you find yourself being carried away with the collective feeling? To me it seems as if there are two forms of fairground. There's the kids' book fair, which is a place for adventure. It's joyful, almost mesmeric. And then there's the other, the horror book fair, The Richard Layman worlds in which everything contorts and shifts and the rides are no longer safe. You read of a certain kind of wildness in the air and an evilness in the eyes of the people who go there, but in those books the horror is often recognisable. It's a caricature which no one could fail to recognise. What these books don't tell you is that the actual horror lies in the smallest of acts a seven-year-old boy with a little change in his pockets enters a fairground alone and when he leaves he is side by side with a man he does not know on the 1st of june 1984 in the town of wokingham in berkshire this is exactly what happened there's footage from the days following the boy's disappearance It shows the field at Wellington Road in Wokingham. The sky is almost a uniform white, except for where the camera, which is probably shooting on video, distorts the shadow of clouds to a fuzzy grey blue. In the daytime, you understand that fairgrounds are meant to be seen at night. The crowds are gone, and where their feet trod, the grass has turned to mud, In the short clips, you see the rides, which are much as you'd expect. Waltzers, a ghost train, the corner of the dodgems, nearly out of frame, all brightly coloured in reds and yellows. But against the dirt of the ground and the white of the sky, they look worn and tired. In one shot, just behind the wooden gates which form the entrance to the field, there stands a police caravan, It's white with a blue trim around the bottom and a black and white checkerboard on the top. The side bears the words, Thames Valley Police. In front of the caravan, just as you come through the gates, you see a hand-drawn, roughly-coloured picture of a faceless boy. It looks rushed, like a child could have drawn it. Arrows point to certain key features, and above the drawing are the words, Have you seen this seven-year-old boy? Next to the board, another, larger, handwritten sign stands propped up on an orange and white traffic cone. Two black and white photographs, one of the boy and one of his bike, are stuck haphazardly beside the words, Police Appeal. The words are underlined for emphasis. Below, in blue pen, the sign tells you, Missing. Seven-year-old Mark Tildesley went missing from this fairground last night between 7pm and 8pm, 1st of June, 1984. This is how real horrors begin, with Mark Tildesley walking away from a fairground in Wokingham with a stranger. As you'll hear later, we now know what happened to Mark that night and the names of the men responsible. But despite that, his body remains missing and there are still questions which surround the events of that evening in 1984. I'm Jess Carter, and this is a collaborative episode between Outlines and the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Anthony Tildesley was born in Berkshire on August the 31st, 1976. His father, John, worked as a labourer for a local metalworking firm, and his mother, Lavinia, was a cleaner at the Wokingham Police Station, supplementing her income with a second cleaning job a couple of evenings a week. The youngest of the three Tildesley children, Mark had been born ten years after his brother Christopher and 17 years after his sister, Christine. In 1984, Mark and Christopher, who was 18, shared a bedroom together in the family's home on Rose Court in Wokingham. Mark attended Palmer's Junior School on Norries Avenue, where he'd been a pupil for three terms. He was described by his head teacher as very quiet and extremely good at school, and he has not been in a moment's trouble. He is a typical seven-year-old. He's something of a loner, quite reasonably academic, a good lad, well-behaved and tries very hard. Contrasting this, he was described elsewhere as mischievous and a wire, sometimes prone to exaggeration. Though, the Tildesleys told the paper that he was quiet and obedient. His mother Lavinia said that he was mad on action men toys and that he loved animals and had always wanted a dog. After his disappearance, his favourite toys, two octopus glove puppets called Itsy and Bitsy, took up residence on the back of the family sofa, waiting for his return. Every year, in early summer, the Francaires Funfair came to Wokingham. As always, Mark was desperate to be allowed to go. Lavinia Tildesley told the Daily Mirror He is fascinated by the noise, the smell and the lights. The last time there was a fair here, he went every evening. Late in the afternoon on Friday the 1st of June, almost the end of the school half-term holidays, Mark ate a dinner of sausage and chips with a glass of milk at home with his family, before watching a Pink Panther cartoon. At around 5.15pm that day, Lavinia headed out to her part-time cleaning job. She kissed Mark on the head as she did so, telling him to be home from the fair no later than half seven. Don't worry, Mum, he reassured her. I'll probably be back before you. Speaking to the Reading Evening Post, Lavinia remembered that exchange, saying, I was just going to work, and he said he'd be back at home when I got back. I told him to be a good boy, and Daddy and Mummy would see him later. I never saw him anymore. I just kissed him on the head as I left, as I always do. According to a Crime watch segment from 1985, it was around quarter to six in the evening when Mark left the house. He was four foot tall, with mousy-colored collar-length hair, brown eyes and slimly built with a gap in his front teeth. Despite his small frame, he would have been eye-catching, as he was dressed in denim jeans with a red belt, brown boots, a white long-sleeved jumper over an Action Man t-shirt and, to finish the outfit off, a cream-coloured zip-up jacket with a large tiger motif on the back. Muck grabbed his bike, a gold rally tomahawk, and set off for the fair. In his pocket, he carried 30 pence for the rides. As always with the timeline of something like this, there's room for things to shift and sightings to contradict. A few days after his disappearance, the Reading Evening Post reported that he had been seen at 6pm that day in Wokingham Town Centre. But, if that was the case, he wasn't there long, because just a little while later, he arrived at the gates of the fairground. His bike key was kept on an Esso petrol key ring, which was a little plastic moulded tiger, clutching a small placard which read, I've got a tiger in my tank. On Mark's key ring, the tiger was missing its feet. After securing the bike safely to the gates, he made his way inside the fairground. According to reports, he was seen at 6.30, and then again at seven o'clock. While the group of kids who saw him at seven reported that he seemed to be alone, the 6:30 sighting was made by two witnesses who claimed that they saw someone watching him. We can be reasonably certain that this sighting was believed accurate because it was reported as part of the Crime Watch appeal. Also reported on Crime Watch, was that at 7.50pm, Mark was seen again in the fairground. He was riding the Dodgems, his favourite ride. By this time, though, he was no longer alone. Beside him on the ride was a middle-aged man, around six foot tall, with scruffy hair and glasses. By 8pm, the two of them had left the fairground together. There was no sign that Mark was alarmed, or that he had not gone with the man willingly. By 8.05pm, there was one last potential sighting of Mark, this time on Langborough Road in Wokingham. David Hine was watching television in his home when he glanced out of a window to see a man and a boy pass by outside. He noticed the boy because of the tiger motif on the back of his jacket. The man he was with was tall and walked with a stoop. He had a prominent nose and a little bit of beard growth. In his hand, he carried two carrier bags. While he was a close match for the man seen earlier on the dodgems, this time, it was reported, he wasn't wearing glasses. David Hine watched the man and boy duck down a lane, but a moment or two later, they reappeared. David thought that perhaps they were looking for something, though it wasn't clear what. This sighting, if indeed it was Mark, is the last time he was ever seen. Five minutes after the boy and the stooping man were seen on Langborough Road, at roughly 8.10pm, Mark's parents, John and Lavinia, were growing increasingly concerned for his whereabouts. Having promised to be home by half seven, his parents decided to head down to the fairground to look for him. When they arrived, they soon found his gold bicycle, still tied to the fairground gates, but there was no sign of Mark anywhere. The couple were worried for their son, and Lavinia Tildesley would tell the papers he was well aware that he shouldn't talk to strangers. John Tildesley unlocked Mark's bike using a spare padlock key and wheeled it home, where the couple contacted the police. Lavinia and John knew he wasn't the type of boy who would have run away from home, and immediately their minds turned to the worst-case scenarios. The first press report of the events in Wokingham came on the 3rd of June, in the Sunday Mirror. By the time they went to press, it would have been at most 36 hours since Mark's disappearance and Superintendent Alan Cussell, one of the detectives working on the investigation, told reporters, With all the publicity and police presence, I am sure Mark would have been found if he had been wandering around or just hiding. Already, police with tracker dogs had been brought in to search in nearby woodland, and a heat-seeking helicopter circled the skies above Wokingham, looking for anything which could lead them to Mark. On Saturday the 2nd, the police caravan had been positioned at the gates of the fairground, which, despite the unfolding drama, had opened for business as usual that afternoon. Officers were keen to question those fairground workers who had been present the previous evening, but had drawn a blank with their inquiries. By the end of the weekend, the investigation, which was being led by Detective Superintendent Roger Nicklin, ...had moved up a notch. Frogmen had been called in to search the waterways around Wokingham... ...and over 40 officers had been drafted in to help with house-to-house calls. On the Saturday evening... ...it was reported that John and Lavinia Tildesley... ...had received what is described as two phantom phone calls... ...and Lavinia said... ...the man told us we would have to pay if we wanted our son back. It's terrible... This is an oddity in the case, because, as far as we know, there was never any talk that the phone call was real, and not just a crank call. Though, if it were, the timing was strange, because, as far as I can find, on the Saturday, news of Mark's disappearance hadn't yet hit the press. And so, whoever made the call would have had to have had a connection to Wokingham. Perhaps it was a local playing a cruel trick on the family. On Monday the 4th, while police continued to make inquiries, Mark's classmates returned to Palmer's Junior High after the half-term break. In assembly that day, the 200 students gathered to say a prayer for their missing classmate. The school's headmaster, Bill Knight, who had never had a situation like that happen in his 38 years of teaching, found the experience an emotional one, students were asked to speak to police to assist with their inquiries as was mrs jill shaw mark's teacher in form 1s the children they spoke to that day offered a puzzling insight into friday's events one 11 year old boy recalled seeing mark at around 805 that evening on a wall beside the waitrose in rose street not far from his house the boy, who had reportedly known Mark his whole life, recalled that he had been wearing a long sleeved white sweater and riding a purple bike. If the Crime Watch timeline is to be taken as accurate, then the young boy must have been mistaken, or perhaps he just wanted to be able to help. As well as sightings of Mark, kids also told the police of their usual haunts dens they played in, and other locations where he might have gone. Detective Superintendent Nicklin said, Children were in places they shouldn't have been, and I would like to appeal to parents of children aged about seven and eight to find out exactly what their children were doing between 6 and 9pm on Friday night. Speaking at a press conference, Superintendent Nicklin was keen to emphasise that the disappearance was not being treated as a murder inquiry, though he did say, I think that if Mark had had an accident in the area, we would have found him by now. So I fear the worst. That same day, an anonymous man described as a senior detective told the Reading Evening Post, We have to consider that he may be dead. I've covered a few missing children cases since starting Outlines, and I find it somewhat unusual that officers were so quick to speak about the possibility that Mark might have died. I don't know if they had a particular agenda in mind, or perhaps they were just trying to draw someone out, or maybe they weren't particularly sensitive to Mark's parents for some reason. But that first week, while John Tildesley said... If anybody has got Mark and they're asking anything for a ransom, just bring him back alive and we'll give them whatever they want. And Lavinia told the press, I'm sure he's alive somewhere. We've been looking for him around every little nook and cranny, everywhere. Already, the official line was that if Mark was found, in all likelihood, he would be dead. As the week went on, while John and Lavinia continued to search every day for their son, the police were already showing signs of desperation, contemplating bringing in the public and the army to assist with the search. The owner of the funfair, Albert Ayres, offered up to £100 reward for information, saying, We are very concerned about the disappearance of this child. We have all got children of our own. We want to help as much as we can to get him back home on the official side of things officers were anxious to reassure the public that if they came forward with information even that which they didn't feel was particularly helpful it would be received well and there would be no talk of time being wasted superintendent nicklin said there is still the possibility somebody in town saw something which niggled about in the back of their mind and they've still not come forward to tell us about it. In a bid to jog memories, police worked with the funfair owners to set up a reconstruction of events. A lookalike was found to ride Mark's bike from the Waitrose car park in Rose Street to the fairground on Wellington Road. On Friday the 8th of June, a week after his disappearance, the reconstruction took place. Passers-by and fairground workers alike turned to watch as the young boy playing the part of Mark rode his way through the town. He stopped to lock the bike and walked over to the dodgems where he stood, watching, contemplating Mark's favourite ride. What the onlookers didn't know, though, was that while the reconstruction was taking place, a man was in the midst of confessing to Mark's murder. I warn you, this is horrible and graphic, though, as Paul will tell you later, it's nothing compared to the truth of what happened that night. On Friday afternoon, the Reading Evening Post reported that police were questioning a man who they had picked up in Cornwall, near Bodmin, the previous evening. In their book, Lambs to the Slaughter, Ted Oliver and Ramsay Smith give a detailed account of the events which followed witness reports, claiming police might want to take a closer look at fairground worker Martin Earley. Earley had been in Wokingham at the time Mark had disappeared, leaving on the Sunday with a brief stop at a fair in Shepton Mallet, before continuing down the country to the Royal Cornwall Show at Wadebridge. Following a call from Wokingham, Detective Constables Dick Cook and Andy Maidment, who were working out of a porter cabin at the show, were asked to approach Earley, who was employed to take money on the galloping horses. As the two detective constables started to speak to Earley, he told them of his movements the previous weekend, though they were unprepared for what would come next. It began with Earley claiming bisexuality, and elaborating by saying that he preferred young boys. Sensing something was coming, the detectives tried to get Ely to hold back on his story until they could move him away from the porter cabin and into a proper police station. Not to be stopped, though, he continued, saying, I did it. We went back to my caravan and were playing about. I went too far and something happened. I took his clothes off. I was playing with him he was touching me all over i bugged him and he didn't like it he went on to say that he had hit mark with the back of his hand across his head and the boy had fallen unconscious on the floor early dressed him carried him away and threw him into the river near some houses by the fairground as martin early was transferred to central lockup in launceston his story changed I didn't throw him in the river, he said. I took him to a wood two miles away and buried him. I carried him over my shoulder. I had strangled him and I stabbed him with my darts. News of the confession threw the incident room at Wokingham Police Station into a frenzy, but Superintendent Nicklin remained dubious. When Ely arrived in Wokingham for questioning, Senior officers soon began to have doubts as to the validity of his confession. The more he talked, the more the details changed. He couldn't describe Mark, and nor could he explain the route he'd taken to dispose of Mark's body. Then, periodically, he'd retract the confession entirely. Eventually, in his final version of events, he denied that he'd even seen Mark at the fairground at all. By this point, police were all but convinced that Early was lying, and while they continued to thoroughly check out his initial confession, forensically examining the caravan in which he claimed the murder had taken place, a consultant psychiatrist was called in. While the scientists concluded that there were no forensic traces of mark anywhere in the caravan, Martin Early was transferred to Fairmile Psychiatric Hospital in Henley and the investigation was back to square one. There have already been a few things about the case which have struck me as odd, but none are more baffling than the speed at which police turn to some of the less traditional forms of investigation. Even before the arrest of Martin Early, only a week after Mark disappeared, mediums were already being interviewed for any information they might hold. Ely's false confession had reminded Superintendent Roger Nicklin of one of these psychics' visions, and by Monday the 11th of June, police were actively interviewing clairvoyants at the incident room in Wokingham. Speaking about this to the press, Superintendent Nicklin provided what must be one of the most ridiculous quotes I've ever heard from a detective in charge of an investigation, when he said... We've had numerous calls from clairvoyants, and we are looking at what they are saying, but one of the problems is that they are all saying something different. We don't ignore it, we compare what they say with other information we have. While I'm not denying that there have been times in which psychics have provided police with real assistance, I think it's a reasonable observation to say that for every person who genuinely believes they have seen visions of crimes, there are a fair few who are either blinded by a keenness to assist or just outright lying. I've talked about cases before, specifically that of Pamela Exall, in which a psychic vision has provided a family with hope in the case of a missing person. Here, though, the opposite was true. In mid-June of 1984, a desperate Lavinia Tildesley left a frantic answering machine message for a psychic named Peter Lee, requesting that he come to Wokingham and help uncover anything he could about Mark's disappearance. In his 1986 book, The Spirit Calls, Peter Lee claimed that Lavinia, in his words, was convinced that Mark was dead and a mother's intuition is seldom wrong. Actually, especially in those early days of his disappearance, Lavinia Tildesley was convinced that her son was still alive. And in 1986, when the egotistical Peter Lee published his book, there was still no evidence to suggest what had happened to Mark. While, sadly, logic might have by that point dictated that he was dead, there was no evidence of this. In 1984, though, the Tildesleys were desperate for any news that they could get. Peter Lee remembered When I first spoke to her on the telephone, I sensed that Mark was definitely dead, but the rest was shrouded in mystery. He drove from London to Wokingham and met with Mark's family. While there, he spoke of the man he claimed was responsible for his disappearance. Unlike the eyewitness accounts of the middle-aged man with a stoop, Peter Lee claimed that the person responsible was young, slim, a local who knew the Tildesley family. He felt as if he should go to the fairground and see if he could, as he said, divine the events that took place. Assisting in his divination was a journalist from the Reading Evening Post who alongside a photograph of Peter Lee at the gates of the field in Wellington Road where the funfair had taken place, reported that Mr. Lee uses his own special powers of thought and concentration and only a small wooden pendulum to confirm his feelings. The reporter, obviously not well versed in the rigours of concentration used to divine anything at all, ...repeatedly asked Peter Lee questions and took photographs... ...as Lee began to explore the field. He claimed in his book that he had known nothing about where Mark disappeared... ...and when he and the journalists started to journey around Wokingham... ...he had been unaware of the particulars of the field... ...relying on his senses to lead him there. With quite the flair for imaginative embellishment... He spoke of the place, saying, As I walked into the field, it was a lot larger than I expected, and was quite beautiful. Little wildflowers dotted the verdant green. The wind rustled high in the old and wise oak trees that grew straight and strong. I took in the atmosphere of the place, tuning in to the patterns of nature that flowed through it. I sensed birds nesting in the hedgerows and butterflies drinking the early evening dew. As the shadows from the clouds grew and the first calm of evening touched the field, I knew that it was time to start. I began psychically to see the funfair form in the atmosphere, the noise of happy children, stalls that sold trinkets, a shooting gallery, the smell of candy floss and toffee apples, the mechanical tune of the merry go round. I knew that Mark's vibrations were amongst this memory. I began to move around involving myself in what I saw as if I was at the fair too. I began to call out to Mark's vibrations with my mind, so to speak, and slowly I began to pick them up. Weak at first, but then they grew stronger. Mark's spirit wanted his murderer to be exposed. From the images that came to mind, he said he started to see the fair's psychic imprint. As he followed his visions across the field, his pendulum began to circle faster and faster until suddenly, he claimed, it shattered. He followed his intuition to a hole in the hedge where he claimed he saw Mark and his murderer disappear. The reporter fetched the car and the two of them drove until they came to a long narrow lane rocky and covered with undergrowth there was lee remembered a small bridge and a railway line then a clearing again showcasing his flair for the dramatic he recalled vibrations came flooding off of a hillside directly in front of me vibrations of a murderous struggle A final blow that ended young Mark's life. I could smell the trickle of warm blood. As Lee walked across the bridge, he claimed to see the older boy push Mark. That Mark hit back, and the older boy laughed. They fought, and Mark ran through the trees into another clearing on the hillside there. The struggle that he claimed led to Mark's death broke out. The hillside... Lee said, the place where he claimed police would find Mark's body was literally screaming, the psychic din deafening. This is the version of events that Peter Lee gave to Mark's parents. In his book, he claimed that despite Mark's classification as a missing person, it was not the case. The killer, he said, he could not publicly identify. The implication, though, was that he knew the youth responsible. When the case was featured on Crime Watch in 1985, the emphasis was on the stooping man seen with Mark at the fairground. It was thought that this man had been picked up by a lorry driver where he'd been hitching with a tachograph on the A30 in Hampshire, about 45 miles south of Wokingham. It was 7.20 in the morning when driver Shane Northway picked the man up. He fitted the rough description of the stooping man, but Shane added he had a strong, unwashed smell to him, and the dirt around the collar of his shirt cemented the impression that he had been sleeping rough. The two spent an uncomfortable couple of hours together in the lorry's cab, and the man told Shane that he was travelling around the country, seeking work. At 10am, the thankful Shane dropped the man just past the fairground in Wokingham and, watching, he noticed that he made his way back up Wellington Road in the direction of the fair. That day, someone fitting the description of the stooping man was seen by several witnesses around Wokingham. A 1998 episode of Dispatches told of how that afternoon Mark, reportedly accompanied by the man, came into the local sweet shop. Margaret Hickman, who was working behind the counter that day, remembered their encounter clearly because, as she said, he smelled very awful. He had staring eyes and unruly hair. The man, she claimed, told Mark to pick out 50 p's worth of sweets before the two left the shop together. Despite this man being the crux of the official line of inquiry, in the spirit calls, Peter Lee claimed that Thames Valley Police had actually worked with him after his visions to produce an identikit based on his description of the murderer. I'm not saying that psychics can never provide help, even if it is just to assist police with a different view of the presented evidence. But I am going to say that it's unwise to trust a psychic who feels the need to take a journalist along with him or one who writes a book heralding his own achievements with no proof of their validity. Despite Peter Lee's assertions that Lavinia and John Tildesley believed that their son had died, the evidence points to a very different truth. In the Reading Evening Post, on the 27th of June, 1984, it was reported that Lavinia kept a photo of Mark by her side, kissing it every night as she awaited his return. His giant teddy bear and a panda waited in his room, which was still scattered with his toys. On a chair, where Mark had left them the day he disappeared, she kept crisps and lemonade, bought for his school lunchbox. A few days later, she spoke about her encounter with Peter Lee, saying, It frightened me a lot, but I know in my heart Mark is still alive. I am certain he is being held by some sex pervert somewhere. I lie awake in tears all night. Before I go to bed, I pray to God and say, Come back to Mummy soon. Her older son, Christopher, was also taking Mark's disappearance badly. The two had shared bunk beds, and the empty top bunk was a nightly reminder of his missing brother. While speaking to a psychic had not provided Lavinia with the comfort she had hoped for, two people who did were Cathy and John Tate, parents of the 13-year-old missing schoolgirl Jeanette Tate, who had disappeared while out delivering newspapers in Aylesbury and Devon in August of 1978. The Tates who had experienced firsthand the devastation of a missing child tried their best to offer Lavinia and John their support on the tate's advice on august the 31st mark's birthday lavinia appealed for local businessmen to fund help find mark stickers to be distributed throughout the country especially in motorway service stations alongside posters bearing his photograph There had been photos up around Wokingham in the couple of months following Mark's disappearance, but over time they were taken down, a sign to Lavinia that people had all but given up on her son and that they had begun to forget that he had not yet been found. Despite the passing months, the family still remained hopeful, and Lavinia told the papers of how Mark's birthday celebrations would have unfolded had he been there. He would have rushed to open his presents in the morning, and then, later, there would have been a party with his school friends. For a present, the Tildesleys had decided to buy him a new bike. In early August, Lavinia had spoken about it, saying, I hope he will be back for his birthday. I'm sure he's coming home. If he's not back, then I will keep his present for Christmas. Christmas came and went, and the years began to roll by. In 1990, on the sixth anniversary of Mark's disappearance, Lavinia spoke again to the Reading Evening Post. She said that she still believed her son was alive. Despite the passing years, Lavinia told the paper that his room had remained unchanged since the day he disappeared, and that still, so many years on, she was always waiting for him to return home while throughout the years police continued to take the case seriously there were still no leads and the tildesley's took it upon themselves to visit london combing the streets for their son and every year when the funfair returned to wellington road they would stage a reenactment of mark's last movements hoping for any new information to come to light Despite the assertions of so-called psychic Peter Lee, for Mark's parents, it was not a case of coming to terms with their grief, but of pushing forwards, always looking for anything which would lead them to Mark, unable to give up hope that one day they would find answers. At the end of Peter Lee's chapter on Mark, he claimed, It is unfortunate that this particular case will never come to the light of society's justice, but it has already been brought to the light of God's. Even in this, though, he was wrong. Mark's case would see the light of society's justice, albeit not completely, and not without leaving plenty of questions unanswered. But I'll let Paul take you through the rest of the case.
1: Skip forward now then to 1990 and once Leslie Bailey had been charged with the murder of Barry Lewis and was awaiting trial for this crime, once detectives were satisfied he told them everything there was for him to tell about Barry's death, with answers having to be drawn out of Bailey like pulling teeth, detectives felt they could now move on to another topic with him. It was one that had been mentioned prominently in the exercise book produced by Ian Gabb and the notes penned by a and it was one that had haunted every waking moment of a lot of people for the previous six years, it being, and arguably remaining today, one of Thames Valley Police's most notorious cases. That of the missing boy, Mark Tildesley. Therefore, once Bailey had appeared at Highbury Corner Magistrates Court on the 30th of July 1990, charged with the murder of Barry Lewis and that one squared away and nailed down, orchid detectives could move on to Mark. Now, Adele had handed police a crudely hand-drawn map on a crumpled piece of paper that supposedly depicted Wokingham, allegedly drawn by Bailey, and showing where Mark had been killed. When an initial interrogation with Bailey concerning Mark revealed nothing, back into the cell with Adele he went, and who, on the 5th of August, wrote a letter for Bailey to Sidney Cook. It was a reply to a note Bailey had received from Cook asking what Bailey had been divulging to police. A reply in which Bailey told Cook that he'd been charged with the murder of Barry Lewis and which continued, I've been questioned about Mark. Do you remember? 1984. At fair. Your mate, Oddbod. Now incidentally, this was to be the last covert intelligence Adale would help detectives gather. For the following month, he was released from his sentence. The flow of information that he'd helped maintain that had its genesis with an outraged and horrified Ian Gabb being invaluable and which he'd received neither reward nor remission for. Bailey was then moved from Wandsworth Prison to a special secure unit at Stoke Newington Police Station which from a description sounded like a self-contained bachelor flat, albeit one behind bars, where those held could even have the privilege to make their own meals from brought-in ingredients. Colatelli, things like that. He was to be held here periodically for almost a year, and where he was visited on average twice a week to be interviewed by Orchid detectives Dave Chappell, Dick Langley and Keith Corkwell who had over time built up a rapport with Bailey, and who, though conducted the interviews formally and cautioned Bailey before each, always did so in a relatively relaxed atmosphere, sat around a table, and always in the presence of Janice Rolt, the representative from Mencap, and Doris Rowan, the appropriate adult, who both sat in on each interview due to Bailey's minor learning disability and his limited understanding. It has to be noted also that in the entirety of these interviews, there was never one complaint from Janice or Doris that Bailey's interviews in any way were being conducted oppressively or him being coerced at all. The tale he had to tell that was to emerge over a period of time was horrific and is somewhat sanitized here as I reproduce it as follows. The following contains disturbing content. We go back then now to the afternoon of the Friday 1st of June 1984. The telephone in the public call box on Marsh Hill in Hackney only rang twice before one individual we've met previously, Leonard William Gilchrist Smith, dived in to answer it, the box being used as his personal office for his foul business and him having waited outside for about 30 minutes for the call he knew would be coming. Because after all, Cookie wouldn't let him down. The two went way back, and it was Cook who had taught him everything he knew. Enthusiastic pupil, willing teacher. It was indeed Cook, and the subsequent conversation they had was short, and mostly one-sided, but went along the lines of... Get yourself up to Wokingham, sharpish. We've got a party. As Smith couldn't drive himself, he was shortly on the telephone to a casual lover and acquaintance of his, one Leslie Bailey, who he'd fixed up as a regular chauffeur for him. As Bailey, who by his own admission always did everything that was asked of him, shortly afterwards picked Smith up by the Spread Eagle pub in Hackney, Following a quick stop to fill up with fuel, and minutes later, with Smith having paid the bill, Bailey's White Triumph 2000 was heading westwards, bound for the M4. Its destination? 54 miles away, to the Berkshire town of Wokingham. When the pair arrived there just over two hours later, they found a parking space in Langborough Road, near to the Ayers Fairground and both strolled into the fair, being amongst the first customers of the evening. While Smith went off to find Cook, soon finding the stinking, stooping individual amongst the stalls, Bailey wandered around the amusements to pass the time. By the time he'd headed back to where they'd parked and sat on the bonnet waiting, it wasn't long before Smith and another man, who Bailey didn't at the time know, came into sight. The stranger hand in hand with a small boy, Mark Tildesley. Though Mark, who'd been caught up in the excitement and glamour of the fair enough to not feel any threat from this man who'd bought him sweets and rides, had gone along with this kind stranger, as the glitz and the music got further away, it was replaced in his mind by a growing feeling of terror and a recognition of the danger he now faced. But by then, It was too late. An extract from Bailey's confession many years later reads. He was being dragged along the street. The boy was holding back trying to get free. Cookie tried to put the boy into the car. But he put his foot up on the side against the sill and pushed back. The boy wasn't all that big. So it wasn't difficult really to pick him up and put him in. As Bailey drove then. With Smith in the passenger seat and Cook in the back, with Mark directing them. It is hard, horrific, and utterly heartbreaking to imagine the fear that must have gone through the little boy's mind, and completely understandable when it was reported that he fell silent and shrank back into the corner of the seat. Thankfully, the boy's youth and his innocence must have spared him from understanding the very likely conversation between the three men. The Triumph made its way towards the Finch Road and then a mile and a half away from the fairground it turned right and headed down Evenden's Lane before after travelling half a mile down here from the junction with the main road at Cook's direction Bailey pulled into the entrance of a field known at the time as The Moors and came to a stop beside a shabby looking small blue and white caravan where Cook had been staying Getting out of the car Cook led Mark up the two wooden steps and inside, where they were met by another individual. Now as a point to note here, there are conflicting reports about this. This individual is referred to in several texts used for research only as Odd Bod and is suggested was a relative of Leslie Bailey’s. But there is conflict as to whether Odd Bod is a nickname of Leslie Bailey’s too. I would suggest this is possibly incorrect reporting here. Because if this fourth individual, Oddbod, was a relative of Bailey's, and Bailey had never before that day met Cook, then what was his relative doing in Cook's caravan? It's an unclear point, this is. What is horrifyingly clear, however, is what happened next. In an obscene parody of the normality when visitors arrive, tea and coffee was then made, before mark was given a glass of his favorite drink milk and told to drink the lot however mark noticed that this milk tasted sharply different and was unable to drink more than half of the glass the effects of the extra added ingredient making it taste weird rapidly having an effect upon him as a large quantity of diazepam will do to a slight seven-year-old boy It rendered Mark pretty powerless to resist being led into the small bedroom of the caravan and undressed, which was soon filled also with the four men stood shoulder to shoulder, crushed in around him, and who then began to remove their own clothing. An extract from Bailey's later interview, which contains disturbing content, is as follows. What happened, Les? He was a bit groggy, still struggling. Anyone try and stop what was going on? Anyone try and leave? No, nobody. You knew what was going to happen, so why didn't you leave? Because I hadn't finished my coffee. Was he laying there voluntarily? No. Cookie asked all of us, me, Lenny and Oddbod, to hold him down. I held his head, Lenny had his hands and Oddbod his feet. What was Mark doing? He was sort of fidgeting. He was trying to turn to move out of the way. He was screaming. Who kept him quiet? Cookie kept saying Be quiet, it won't hurt. He kept saying that all the time to the boy. Was he still struggling? Yes, yeah, still struggling, shouting and screaming. Bailey then described as whilst he kept a tight grip on the boy's head, Smith then asked Cook to fetch a bottle from his jacket pocket, and when it was produced, Smith then forced a tablet into Mark's mouth using his thumb to keep his jaw open so he could swallow the extra diazepam. His confession continued. Were you happy about that Les? No, because like I told Lenny, it might have killed him. Go on. Lenny put his hands under the boy's armpit and up around his throat. He was squeezing. The boy went white, then blue. His eyes were like red and puffing up, and then they closed. How long were his hands around the boy's throat? A couple of minutes, and then Oddbod said, Get your hands away. Then Lenny said, No, he might recognise us. Was he still struggling? No. I went round to try to feel his pulse on his wrist. I couldn't feel the boy's pulse at all. There was no breathing or nothing like that. You couldn't see him moving? Was he breathing? Did that worry you? Yeah, I felt upset what did you do then well i said to lenny what you done len lenny said he was asleep and i said he ain't the boy's dead because as i said there's no pulse no air no breathing there was no semblance of panic no overwhelming motion to perform first aid on the boy here realizing this instead as Mark's body lay used and discarded on the bed in that dingy caravan. His four killers simply redressed, moved back to the living space, and one of them then put the kettle on to make them some more tea and coffee. Words fail, don't they? They simply fail. Abhorrent beyond belief. As Bailey and Smith prepared to drive back to Hackney, Cook told them that he would dispose of Mark's body and the two then set off on the 50-plus mile journey back, pretty much in silence. They mentioned Mark just once when Smith reiterated his faith that Cook would deal with the boy after Bailey had asked. Just after Bailey had dropped Smith off at Hackney Marshes, by this time around midnight, he was making his way back to his flat on the Frampton Park estate, where then on Mandeville Street he was pulled over by a passing police patrol car who had noticed him driving erratically. As police constables Janet Symes and Mark Pridham examined the logbook and MOT certificate that Bailey produced on request, they noticed a blank certificate of insurance contained within, which Bailey admitted when questioned he had bought off a friend for £7. Arrested for this, he was taken to Hackney Police Station where he was subsequently charged with possession of a false insurance certificate and released on bail, appearing just over a month later on the 6th of July 1984 at Old Street Magistrates Court where he was fined £30 and discharged. The night of Mark's party, as Bailey referred to the evening of Mark's death, was reportedly his introduction to the paedophile ring and for however much he may have claimed to have been upset or concerned about the boy's well-being it didn't stop him going forth and continuing in some of the foulest actions in british criminal history as we've heard so far throughout the tale now following this account Two things had rapidly convinced the Orchid detectives that Bailey was speaking the truth when he'd begun discussing Mark. He'd named two of the other men involved in the caravan orgy where Mark lost his life, Lenny Smith and Sidney Cook, both known habitual child sex offenders, and the latter of whom fitted the description of the stooping man seen so often around Wokingham around the time of Mark's disappearance that had been described to police and he had described being arrested for a motoring offence on his way home from the killing, which was easily confirmed and was found to tally with the night Mark went missing. Yet he remained adamant that he didn't know the location of Mark's body, only saying, What I can remember is that when we left, the body was still in the caravan. Now, Jess has already covered the immediate investigation into Mark's disappearance so there's no need for me to rehash that here but as part of that initial investigation a fairground worker contacted detectives to alert them to a man named Sidney Cook someone he'd worked with before over the years and that he remembered an incident in which Cook had lured two young boys into a lorry at a London fairground the boys emerging a few minutes later clutching a pound note So incensed was the worker at what had clearly gone on that he'd even struck Cook and angrily warned him off doing things like that ever again. Following this report, on the sixteenth of August, a Metropolitan Police Officer called at Cook's flat in Hackney and was told by him that on the night of Mark's disappearance he'd been working at a fair opposite West Hendon Police Station, which would be alibied by the fair's owner, Rosie Grey. Detectives from the incident room in Berkshire did speak to her and she confirmed to them that yes Cook worked for her which meant as a result that although his name remained on file he was eliminated as a suspect in the case. So six years before he'd come to the attention of police investigating Mark's disappearance but had been all but eliminated. But worked for her isn't quite the same as confirming that he was working at a fair in west hendon on the night mark disappeared though is it and certainly not enough to eliminate him serious mistake made there on the 19th of august detectives from orchid took bailey and his solicitor to wokingham using the exact route that bailey described he had driven there six years before He had described features he remembered from the journey that convinced the detectives more of his accuracy. A lighting shop he recalled passing, the railway arches he'd driven underneath, all of which were corroborated on the journey. And although he couldn't beforehand recall the name of the road, he had instant visual recall when they passed Evendon's Lane, saying, It was that E Road just down there. Down at the bottom of here, Bailey directed the car to stop and then pointed at the spot where the caravan had been. He could even describe it as having been south-facing. But as he still maintained he knew nothing about the disposal of Mark's body, there was little to be gained by remaining there. A few days later, Bailey was moved to Winston Green Prison near Birmingham and was given the new identity of Leslie Hawkins, as well as a fictitious offence being advised to say nothing and keep his mouth shut and with none of the fellow inmates there told anything about him whilst the interviews with him continued. At a meeting in December 1990, attended by senior officers including Detective Superintendent Stoodley, Detective Superintendent Miller and Detective Superintendent Mick Short, the SIO who was taking over Mark's case, it was decided to operate a joint squad and have all information fed into Thames Valley's Holmes Terminal at the new incident room at the Police Training School at Sullumstead, with a link-up in Arbour Square, and the reinvestigation into Mark's disappearance, slash, abduction and murder, staffed by 20 officers, went into operation on the 7th of January 1991. With this reinvestigation, new terms of reference were drawn up for the squad, reading, The purpose of the incident room is to research the inquiries carried out by Operation Orchid and to compare that information with the Tilsley database. In particular, the admissions made by Bailey are to be researched and carried out in an attempt to find corroboration. A full investigation is to be carried out to obtain evidence against the persons named by Bailey as being responsible for the abduction and murder of Mark Tilsley. Meanwhile, following Bailey's account, as I described earlier, inquiries now began in the area around Evendon's Lane to see if anyone recalled the caravan being there, and many residents here indeed now came forth by saying that they indeed remembered the blue and white caravan being there in the Moors Field, but no one had mentioned it at the time because no one had linked it to Mark's disappearance. One resident, crucially, could even recall it as certainly being there during the carnival field fair in 1984 because he recalled noticing it as he carried home the two goldfish that he'd won at that fair certain it was then because one of them who he'd named Humphrey was still going strong six years later many of the original witnesses from 1984 were now re-interviewed in light of this information And police were to ultimately obtain more than 20 accounts confirming the presence of a caravan in the moors on monday the 18th of march of that year the moors was ordered to be thoroughly searched ahead of the development company that it had since been sold to beginning work on it to build the golf course on the site that still stands today against the gauntlet of press who had long since gotten wind of the increased police activity in the area, and not needing to be murder she wrote, to suspect it may be linked to Wokingham's most notorious case. Search officers would not be drawn as to whether one of Mark's suspected killers had identified the site specifically, but Detective Superintendent Short's deputy, Detective Inspector Tom Morrison, was quoted as saying, Investigations have revealed that Mark was last seen alive in a caravan parked in this field. It is a natural progression to search the area, although there is no clear evidence that there is a body here. We think he is dead. It would be naive to think he is still alive. For the peace of mind of the mum, the family, and Wokingham itself, whatever the result, it would be better to have an end result. This quote and the search itself was the first public official acceptance that Mark was dead and his family were aware of the search and what it meant than being kept respectfully informed of any developments in the case at all times over the years. Although the search which lasted five days was massive all the undergrowth in the moors was cut down and the ground scrutinized along 500 yards of hedgerow for any signs of disturbed earth the use of six cadaver dogs and heat seeking helicopters even a study of the crop growth in the area was undertaken sadly nothing was found now i must stress that of course this isn't the first search for mark undertaken of course not the search back in 1984 was massive but even back then one account suggested if true that Mark was sadly never going to be found alive. About a month after he'd disappeared, a train driver working on the Guildford to Reading train line early one morning, whilst the locomotive was stopped at a crossing, was adamant that he'd seen a fox carrying what looked like a child's severed arm in its mouth, alongside the tracks near Wokingham. Although British Transport Police did comb the undergrowth along the railway as part of the search for Mark, The only bones ever found were identified as being animal ones. And this theory of foxes taking away his body was dispelled after experts from Oxford and Reading Universities said it was highly unlikely the animal would tear at a human corpse. But it was a sighting and a possibility that could never be dismissed fully. Understandably, This fresh search of the Moors had an effect on the Tilsley family then, as you can imagine. Through researching, it's fair to say that Mark's tragic story is the one out of the boys discussed so far that there is the most information available about, and as Jess alluded to before, over the years since his disappearance, Lavinia Tilsley became the very public face of the missing Mark and over the years had featured in several human interest stories in the newspapers around the anniversary of his disappearance, or a birthday, or a holiday occasion, sadly, despite the passage of time, never quite being able to give up that hope that his son would one day be found alive. Mark was brought home strongly to readers by Lavinia's accounts of how the family continually bought presents for him on birthdays and at Christmas that remained unopened how it had taken Lavinia four years to learn not to set a place at the kitchen table for Mark, or how they kept some of his favourite cuddly toys, two octopuses named Itzy and Bitsy, and a Paddington Bear that he'd renamed Punk on his bed at home, never quite giving up that hope. Absolutely heartbreaking, isn't it? Of course, as Jess said, it was the family pushing forward this was. Looking for those answers of what had happened to Mark. But you cannot imagine how difficult this must be, and when police start officially searching for your son's body, you can't even imagine how trying to accept your greatest fear come true must be, can you? In July 1991, following the completion of the search, following the seventh anniversary of Mark's disappearance, and a month ahead of what would have been his 15th birthday, Lavinia was quoted as saying I wouldn't like to meet up with the people who've done these awful things but I would like them to come forward and tell the police what they've done with Mark then we could at least give him a proper burial it's awful just not knowing they cannot understand the aggravation it is causing us we just want to know where he is Now it almost seems as though the poor woman was finally accepting that Mark sadly wasn't coming home. But not all of the family were as accepting, because not all of them could be. In October 1991, more than seven years after the night his son went missing, John Tilsley, a largely private man who kept his emotions buried, even from his family, on a rare occasion showed them. Lavinia as we said had become the public face of Mark's disappearance but John was rarely if ever mentioned he was said to have developed an almost mental block about it unable to discuss Mark openly and suffering terrible mental stress over the preceding years bottling everything up on the night he was told by detective superintendent Short that they planned to charge a man with Mark's murder in the upcoming days john did open that bottle however john Tilsley turned to him in response and said firmly but with tears in his eyes i'm sorry mr short but until i see mark's body i just can't accept it poor poor man what kind of purgatory must something like that be as we've discussed before here several times on the show If it's a choice between that pain of the finality of a loved one being dead and not, you must really cling to any chance, however slight, that it isn't true, mustn't you, to spare yourself from that, and which is completely understandable, of course it is. I've been nothing except touched and heartbroken for the families of each of the boys we've heard the tales of throughout the part so far, it's truly the stuff of nightmares. On Friday, the 18th of October, 1991, Leslie Bailey was once again brought back for a brief trip through Wokingham. Before at Maidenhead Police Station, he was formally charged with the murder of Mark Tilsley, along with persons unknown, and returned to prison. He appeared at Bracknell Magistrates' Court again on Monday, the 10th of February, 1992, this time to be committed for trial at Reading Crown Court. Scheduled to be held in October of that year, and where the almost 90 statements and 40 exhibits to be referred to throughout the trial were detailed. Bailey, not the most aware of characters, said nothing in response to this, and shielded himself with a grubby beige coloured suede jacket from the gauntlet of photographers poised to capture the moment he left court, being sped away in a prison van immediately after the hearing. Now it was time to nail the others responsible, who were known all too well by police, down to face the same charges. To bullet point somewhat on what grounds they believed they would, based on the evidence they'd obtained, they had several subsequent accounts that could place Lenny Smith at being at 36 Ashmead House on the night Jason Swift was killed, and also a detailed and harrowing one from their best witness, Leslie Bailey who had named him as being present at and responsible for the murder of Mark Tilsley in his confession. The CPS were also assessing Uncle Donald Smith, the tenant of 36 Ashmead, as a possible witness against Lenny Smith and Sidney Cook. Once he'd, I quote, purged his criminality, them almost acknowledging that they'd made a serious mistake not proceeding with charges against him at the 1989 trial. Oddbod, who as I said has never been publicly named, was at the time being indefinitely detained at a secure mental hospital in Hertfordshire after being committed two years previously following a trial at the Old Bailey for the buggery of two boys aged 8 and 11. As the individual was diagnosed as having the mental capacity of an 8 year old and was already being detained indefinitely in a secure hospital, charges against him appeared doubtful and pointless to proceed with it's somewhat wrong that is isn't it but there you go cook meanwhile his alibi from 1984 was now thrown into doubt when rosie gray now said she'd not seen him at west hendon on the 1st of june 1984 after checking her records he had in previous interviews admitted having the use of a caravan back in the 1980s identical to that described by Bailey in his recount of Mark's death and was on the 3rd of August 1991 to be picked out by four out of six witnesses at a police line-up as being the foul-smelling, stooping man who had been seen at the fair and around Wokingham on the day Mark disappeared back in 1984 including by Shane Northway the lorry driver who had picked up a stinking, stooping individual, and Margaret Hickman, who had served a similar man in the Wokingham sweet shop, where he'd bought sweets for Mark. There was also the impressive evidence of the Tiger keyring that had been found in the back of Cook's Jaguar car when it was repossessed by the owner, as we've heard. Although the vehicle had, by the time police retraced the owner, been scrapped, they had a detailed statement concerning it from the vehicle's former owner, John Purvo, which, it has to be said, is an unbelievably unfortunate name to have in association with an investigation such as this. Purvo was the fairground worker who had sold the Jaguar to Cook back in 1984 for £400 and had repossessed it the following year as Cook had failed to keep up the payments on it. He'd found no end of junk in the vehicle when he had repossessed it, trinkets and crap, but including a tiger keyring with the feet of it broken off. He'd been interviewed previously by the longest serving officer on the Tilsley case, Detective Constable Jeff Gilbert, when he'd been 95% certain it was Mark's keyring after being shown a drawing of it. He was traced once again in 1990 and asked again what he could remember about the keyring. Where he recalled again quite certainly that had the feet not been broken off it, he would have kept it. How can he have been so sure about a trinket from so many years ago, you may ask? Before the days of Joe Exotic, as fate would have it, John Pervo was a massive tiger buff and having scores of stuff to do with them ornaments, pictures, adorning the walls and shelves of his house. Because the feet were broken off the keyring, He'd thrown it back into the boot with the other junk not long afterwards having the car scrapped complete with the contents of the boot so it's not there in person granted and it is circumstantial but it's very very compelling isn't it and it strengthened the case that much oh and the coup de grace against cook they had the very detailed account gleaned from more than 60 hours of interviews Making up some 2,000 plus transcribed pages of Leslie Bailey, who had very certainly named Cook prominently in all of his accounts. The Orchid team thus submitted files to the CPS outlining the cases against Lenny Smith in connection with Jason Swift and Sidney Cook in connection with Mark Tilsley, confident that with such strong evidence, they had sufficient evidence to get both of them before a jury. And it sounds compelling, yet yeah. I mean, aside from what I outlined before, here you have two members of the gang giving accounts of what had happened, one of them having been interviewed extensively over a year and being cooperative and as helpful as he possibly could be, already facing a life sentence with nothing to lose. You'd be confident in that. I certainly would. Unbelievably, how wrong they were to be so confident because Bailey had confessed to and been convicted of Barry Lewis's murder Sidney Cook, Robert Oliver and Stephen Barrell had now seized upon this and had appealed their sentences that they'd received when each had been convicted in the Jason Swift case the case came before the Court of Appeal in February 1992 when each had served less than three years and in which the presiding panel decided that the trial judge, Mr Justice McCullough, had he known the activities of Bailey, would not have dealt with Cook and Barrel as severely as he did, for Bailey here was being portrayed as the ringleader, the evil mastermind behind each of the crimes. Therefore, Cook's sentence was cut from 19 years to 16, and Barrel's cut from 13 and a half years to ten Oliver's appeal was however dismissed yes I know right how disgraceful is that for however evil Bailey was and I'm not dressing up anything here make no mistake this is a monster we're talking about there were certainly bigger ones than him in that gang and as for him running it he couldn't have run a bloody bath he was a gopher someone who did what he was told unquestionably no, the Orchid detectives were shocked and revulsed by this decision with Detective Superintendent Stoodley quoted as saying following the decision for Cook to get a reduction in sentence is nothing short of obscene Now, the CPS were at this time still examining the evidence presented to them concerning Lenny Smith and Sidney Cook and in the case of the former they had agreed that there was enough evidence to charge and prosecute Smith for the abuse of a young boy in connection with the Brent Inquiry. So, following the boy giving his evidence behind closed screens at Thames Magistrates' Court, at a committal hearing in July 1992, Smith was remanded and committed for trial at the Old Bailey. One ticked off there then. It was October of that year, the 7th, however, when detectives from Orchid were summoned to a meeting at the CPS offices to learn of the fruits of their labours, only to find that lawyers had long since made up their minds, before the meeting was even scheduled. There were to be no negotiations, despite the heartfelt pleas of officers, as Representatives Ricky Roder, head of the General Casework Division, and Andrew Harmon, the solicitor dealing with the cases, went through the witnesses against Lenny Smith one by one and deemed each unsatisfactory based on either who they were or the discrepancies in their accounts. Cook, meanwhile, they argued, was 65 years old then and despite his reduction in sentence was still facing 13 years inside the likelihood being that he would die in prison anyway. Oddbod, meanwhile, as we've said, was already in a secure hospital indefinitely and was not felt to be able to understand any charges. As a result then, it was decided that there were to be no further charges brought against anyone in the cases concerned. Cook, Smith, Oliver, Barrel, Oddbod, even Uncle, the tenant of 36 Ashmead House. The CPS works under Attorney General laid down guidelines that state there has to be at the very least a 50% chance of conviction based on the evidence before putting a defendant before a jury and they felt that they simply didn't have this here. Gutted, how flawed would you have been and how raging. Detective Superintendent Stoodley publicly expressed his disgust, saying Lawyers representing the Crown have said that it is not in the public interest to prosecute Cook They felt that he was too old and might die in prison while serving his current sentence. But he could be released from prison by 1995, and despite his age, he is still an active and aggressive homosexual and a danger to children. I think that when they talk public interest, they are really talking about public money. And in the case of Lenny Smith, the lawyers conceded there was evidence against him, but said it was insufficient to guarantee a conviction. How the hell can you work out percentages in matters like these? I am totally convinced there was sufficient evidence to bring those men before a court. These cases should not be settled in a lawyer's office. It should be up to a jury to decide. That's what our legal system is supposed to be all about. Indeed, at least give a jury a chance to make up their own eh? I completely agree with Roger Stoodley there. What an absolute disgrace of a decision. People like we've come to learn about over the arc so far, the likes of Smith, Cook, Oliver, Bailey, you would surely do whatever you could at whatever cost if there was any possible way you could go to ensure that foulness such as this never walked the streets again to get near to another child. Surely you'd jump at it and put it into action. Or is that just me? To not do, based on the evidence we've heard that was available that could have gone before a jury, makes a mockery of the inscription above the entrance to the most famous court in the UK, the Old Bailey, which reads, Defend the children of the poor, and punish the wrongdoer. What a piss take. It fails on both counts of that, this does. It really does. Even Uncle Donald Smith... Was to express his surprise at the decision of the CPS here, as he was expecting renewed charges of conspiracy offences, and had even set himself up to give evidence as a witness. He'd provided a written statement, witnessed by a solicitor, in which he confirmed he was willing to go to court, both as a defendant and a witness, saying, I was present in my flat on the night that Jason Swift was killed, but I was not in the room when it happened. I'm still prepared to tell the truth in court and name the men involved. I've told the whole story to police and am willing to go to court and give evidence on oath to support those statements. Following the CPS decision, he told authors Ted Oliver and Ramsey Smith who had interviewed him for their book, Lambs to the Slaughter. I told the truth because I thought I was dying from cancer, came into the world with a clear conscience and hoped to go out with one. But now that I've told the truth, the lawyers have thrown it in the bin. What's the point? I'm not going back on my word. The men I'm prepared to name are bad and a great danger to children. And the CPS could only come out with some crap about evidence being considered on other suspects, but it being insufficient, based on what we've heard. What an absolute disgrace. Almost two weeks after this shit show, no other word will do there, Bailey made his final court appearance charged with the murder and buggery of Mark Tilsley ahead of his trial, which was scheduled to begin on Wednesday the 21st of October 1992 at Reading Crown Court before Mr Justice Anthony Hidden and where he was expected to enter a plea of guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. This was in no way going to be accepted by the Crown who were determined to prosecute Bailey for murder and following an adjournment until the following day it was then that John Nutting QC revealed to the court what had been decided. Bailey, wearing his usual court attire of scruffy cream suede jacket and trousers stood in the dock of number one court and with the help of his counsel pleaded not guilty to murder but guilty to manslaughter and guilty to a charge of buggery at a minute past 11 mr Nuttin rose to address the court and explained why the crown was willing to accept this plea saying that the crown's case was not that bailey was the prime mover in the abduction rape and murder of mark tilsley the crown accepted bailey's repeated assertions that he'd not known the boy was going to die in advance and therefore it was accepted that a manslaughter charge was the correct one in the circumstances, a decision accepted by Mr Justice Hidden. Pointing out how Bailey's confessions concerning the murders of Jason Swift and Barry Lewis had led to the imprisonment of other members of a paedophile ring and earning himself a life sentence in the process. Mr. Nuttin said that although his statements concerning the abduction, rape and murder of Mark Tilsley were the sole evidence against him, Senior Treasury counsel had accepted that they represented, I quote, a measure of the truth. He then presented to the court the account of the night of Mark's abduction, which I reproduce here and which I do warn contains disturbing content as follows. On the night of Mark's disappearance, Bailey had been asked by another gang member and his lover Lenny Smith to drive from Hackney to Wokingham as there was to be a child sex abuse party at a caravan owned by Cook. The journey was a prelude to Bailey's induction to the paedophile ring. Upon arriving in Wokingham, Smith went to find Cook while Bailey waited in his car on Langborough Road. Cook and Smith arrived moments later with Cook holding a small boy by the hand, Mark, who had been promised a 50 pence bag of sweets. The child appeared to be dragging back and unwilling to be led, so the two men physically lifted Mark into the car. Smith then sat in the front passenger seat while Cook sat in the back, holding Mark down. They then drove the short distance to Cook's caravan where they were met by Bailey's family member known as odd bod they all then went into the caravan where cook gave mark a glass of milk laced with muscle relaxant and valium mark however only drank half of the milk claiming it tasted weird it was at this time that the rapes began the men there all then took the clothes off and one after another beginning with cook and ending with lenny smith they buggered mark Tilsley. they then force-fed mark more muscle relaxant, forcing it down his throat before continuing to rape him again but this time mark was gagged smith was buggering the boy and became very sexually excited he held the boy's throat with his left hand the child's face quickly became bluish in color It was about half an hour after arriving at the caravan that Bailey reported telling the others that he thought Mark was dead because he could feel no pulse. Cook told him that Mark was fine and that once they were done they would drop him off at home. It soon occurred however that Bailey was right and Mark was dead. Bailey panicked when he could find no pulse in the boy's body but was reassured that it was all right to leave the child and return with Smith to London. After the party, Bailey and Smith left together and drove back to Hackney. Before going their separate ways, Smith told Bailey that Cook would be the one to dispose of the body. This defendant says that in his heart, he knew the boy was dead when he left the caravan. Foul, despicable, pure, abject horror that isn't it? Poor, poor child. Now it is incredibly unusual for a prosecutor to be so explicit as to name people in the court address who had not been charged in relation to the case and here he was describing Smith and Cook in such detail concerning the murder that could convince no one hearing it of their innocence whatsoever. And yet they weren't in the dock with Bailey too. It just angers you and it boggles the mind doesn't it. Bailey's counsel Stephen Batten QC who had represented him the previous year during his trial for the murder of Barry Lewis made what he described as a most unusual request and asked the judge that his client be given the maximum sentence of life imprisonment he told the court Bailey would very much like to be able to shed some light on the mystery of where Mark's body is but he can't there is no doubt that Cook and Smith abducted Mark that Smith drugged him, that all the men sexually abused him, and that he died, literally, at the hands of Lenny Smith. This paedophile ring subsequently went on to commit other foul crimes. The significant fact in dealing with the killings of these three boys is that the man you have to sentence here today is the only one who has sought to clear the air. The others have always remained silent. He's always wanted to see the others brought to the same justice as he's brought to himself. He is surprised and disappointed that he is here in the dock on his own today and that Smith and Cook are not here with him. He doesn't understand why this should be so. Because the CPS were an absolute shamble of bollocks in this, that's why. Sentencing Bailey Mr Justice Hidden told him Leslie Patrick Bailey, the accounts of the activities of you and the other men in the hour or so before that little boy, Mark Tilsley, died, are the most harrowing and horrifying circumstances this court can imagine. Understand this, please. What you and the others did to that poor defenceless boy was totally horrifying, wicked and inhuman. The cruelty that was inflicted upon him just before he died was despicable. You are a public menace and you are a danger to young boys. In order to protect the public from serious harm, I sentence you to a term of life imprisonment. If you are ever released, any licence will last until your death. If freed, you could be returned to prison at any time. Mr Justice Hidden, in passing the two concurrent life sentences, left it to the presiding Home Secretary to decide the term Bailey should serve. When Bailey left the dock to begin his second and third life sentences, these making little difference to him except making him more despised in prison, Mr Justice Hidden then addressed the Orchid officers, commenting to them in open court. The quality of the investigation into this case and its duration show that in fact a persistence and devotion to duty has been shown by all the officers concerned. This has been the most tragic case I can imagine. The distress of the parents is enormous and it must be compounded by not knowing the final resting place of their son. You have pursued an honourable and sustained investigation. I commend you all. Mark's family were not there to see Bailey sent down as they didn't attend the trial nor any of Bailey's court appearances. Lavinia Tilsley did comment after his conviction though saying I'm glad he's behind bars forever and can't come out to do this to anybody else's child they should have hanged him it's too much to get over you never can get over it but he's where he should be I'm glad about that she added later that following Bailey's sentencing she and the Tilsley family did open a bottle of wine in celebration But it was, of course, a bittersweet one, because this son, although it now acknowledged by them, and legally, that he was dead, was still out there lost somewhere. It was a fact that hung heavily over the Orchid team, and especially Detective Superintendent Short also, who later appeared at a press conference at Sulemstead, saying, I set out to find Mark's body two years ago. Nine years ago, I was looking for a missing boy. From that angle, I feel I failed. I feel deeply that I've failed Mark's parents. They will never give up hope until he's found, but now, after all these years, there can be little hope left. I don't think Leslie Bailey should ever be allowed to go free again, and I don't think he will. I submitted papers on Sidney Cook twelve months ago, but the CPS does not believe there is a case that can be brought to court. And I don't think that Lenny Smith will ever face being charged in connection with the disappearance and killing of Mark Tilsley. As far as Leslie Bailey is concerned, I don't believe that he is the most wicked of the people that killed Mark. In fact, in many respects, he was the least guilty. I think this ring of paedophiles is responsible for the disappearance of other children. I wouldn't like to put a number on it, but I'm certain that other children will have gone missing at their hands. The other men, I believe, are evil, and I'm certain they will come out of prison. And when they come out, I'm convinced they will kill again. Roger Stoodley, by that time retired, added, The bodies of young boys were being carried about the Kingsmead estate in broad daylight. Children were being abused, corrupted and killed. Someone there must have seen something, surely why didn't anyone do anything to stop it? This gang based there has unquestionably killed more children than is known, the total could be four, it could be nine. I found the figures of 20 or 25 victims, as has been mentioned, hard to believe, but I can't say with my hand on my heart that there were not that many. The tragic answer is that no one will ever really know. Mark's family for many years did not know the horrific details of his death at their own request and following the verdict they avoided all television news and newspapers for several days afterwards. But even after so many years and someone, not all who should have I stress, having faced justice for him, it was still not complete for them for aside from the others who should have been held to account for his abduction and murder and weren't, Mark was still out there somewhere, a lost boy, the heart broken for him.
0: This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter and Paul Sutherland. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.